The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. So honored and delighted to have each of you joining us for today's conference call. Joining me on our call today are Anna Stepanova, who's the Assistant Managing Attorney at the firm, as well as a member. And I have Lori Haas, a brilliant attorney in the Special Projects Department of the firm, who can talk about issues pertaining to criminal consequences of actions and the immigration impact. So our topic today is dealing with the immigration consequences of criminal activity and how it may affect you as an employer or you as an individual or your family members who may have been involved in any type of criminal activity, whether it is small or big or somewhere in between. So the topic will focus on the consequences of the foreign nationals crime or criminal activity and the impact on the person's immigration status. Obviously, a foreign national who commits certain crimes may be ineligible to enter or remain in the United States. The timing, the nature, and the outcome of that criminal record or activity will generally determine the impact it will have on the immigration status, not just for that person. Obviously, all dependent family members may not be able to get any kind of immigration benefit if they are basing it off of that principal applicant. So the first question we're going to answer by way of introduction is, how does a criminal record affect eligibility for immigration benefits? So there are two specific categories of immigration benefits that may be affected. The person's admissibility or admission into the United States and the ability of the person to continue to stay in the U.S. if the person is already here in the United States. If the person is deemed or considered as inadmissible based on a criminal record, that means that the person may not be able to obtain a visa to enter the United States, or if they already have a visa previously in the passport and like an H-1 petition or an L-1 petition, the person will not be able to return to the U.S. from a trip abroad, even if that visa is not yet expired and looks like it's facially valid, or the person may not be eligible to become a lawful permanent resident or a green card holder or even extend the person's non-immigrant status in the U.S., such as H1, H4, L1, L2, O1, O2, etc. Slightly different uh, connotation if the person is already in the U.S., either as a non-immigrant or as a lawful permanent resident, the person could be subject to what is known as removal, previous name for that was a deportation, based on a particular criminal record. So in some situations, a foreign national may be considered only as inadmissible, but not subject to deportation or removal. But in other situations, the person may only be subject to removal, and sometimes they could be subject to both inadmissibility and removability um, 
and in some unusual situations which we will discuss having a criminal record actually may not prevent the person from obtaining immigration benefits and will not make them subject to removal either so it's a very complicated and nuanced field and as i said earlier i have with me two of our brilliant lawyers available and willing to speak on this topic so i'm going to invite anna to talk about what is involved in analyzing a criminal record to see how it affects the foreign national's ability to either enter the united states or become a lawful permanent resident or continue to stay in the united states anna thank you sheila as you just said uh, very correctly that this is a an extremely complicated area of the law so it's important to parse it out and take one step at a time so whenever we are looking into somebody's criminal record and what exactly it means for their ability to come to the US or to be here on a continuing basis we usually start with determining whether they that person has a conviction and that is a very important step in our analysis because nobody uh, i'm sorry uh, not everybody i should say understands that a conviction for immigration purposes how it's defined in the federal immigration law uh, which is the immigration and nationality act or ina may not be the same as a conviction under specific state law or federal criminal code which actually governs that person's criminal record under the ina a conviction for immigration purposes is defined as a formal judgment of guilt or which is more often uh something that we look into is um based on two conditions both of which have to be met one is that a judge or jury finds the person guilty or the person enters a plea of guilty or no contest or the person has admitted sufficient facts to warrant a finding of guilt on the record and the second condition which is also uh which also has to be true is when the judge has ordered some form of punishment or penalty or restraint on the person's liberty it doesn't have to be a jail sentence so where that person meets both of the conditions regardless of what they um have as an uh, what the outcome is in their criminal case they would also have a conviction for immigration purposes so that is a very uh important step in analyzing a person's criminal record for immigration purposes thank you so much anna it's and and i know as people are hearing anna speak they're like oh my god this sounds so complicated so it might really help if we can discuss a couple of like an example when the outcome of whether the individual has a conviction or not as a result of a criminal proceeding under the state or federal criminal law would you know is different from the result under immigration laws so lori i'm going to invite you to speak and share some preliminary thoughts here with an sure, example sure thank you sheila sure thank you sheila so yeah it is very complicated and uh people don't realize um that the difference between uh, a conviction under federal for federal immigration purposes could be very different than under state law purposes and so one of the most common examples we see 
uh, is when a defendant in a pretrial diversion agreement, which is a very common um, type of disposition under state and or federal law, uh, criminal, state, fe uh, federal criminal law, which requires uh, a defendant to either plead guilty or no contest and then comply with some type of penalty, which probably does not involve any type of jail sentence. It might include taking a class, paying a fine, doing community service. And then once those conditions are satisfied, the charge is terminated. And so the, the, the record under state law or federal criminal law might look like a, a termination or a dismissal. And so there's no conviction under the state law, but under federal immigration uh, law, it will be a conviction because you have the two conditions that Anna just described satisfied. You have a defendant who either pled guilty or pled no contest, and some type of punishment was imposed. So uh, that would be a conviction under the INA for immigration purposes. And so there are these types of scenarios where you have to be very careful because you will end up with a, a conviction for immigration purposes, but you would not have one under state law purposes or federal criminal law. Thank you, Lori. Yeah, so this obviously may not make sense to a person hearing it for the first time, and that is why it can get very complicated, even with a very minor situation that somebody may say, oh, that's not a felony. I hear that all the time when I do my consultations. Oh, that was just a small misdemeanor. It wasn't a felony, so it shouldn't impact my immigration. And the answer, as Lori and Anna have just explained, is it doesn't matter even if it's not a, mis a felony or even a misdemeanor even just pleading no contest or pleading guilty or admitting to the facts can end up with some type of a, being considered as a conviction under federal immigration law. So, Anna, what are the most common categories of crimes that would make someone subject to inadmissibility or to being removed slash deported from the U.S.? Uh, so, the most common category of crimes um, that a lot of people are familiar with are called uh, crimes involving moral turpitude. They're the most common ones in our practice, and I would believe that for a lot of other immigration attorneys, that's what they see a lot. They, um, these types of crimes are generally defined as something offensive to American ethics and accepted moral standards. They usually involve theft, dishonesty, fraud, wire fraud, larceny, uh, something that has to do with lying or cheating, uh, stealing. To involve moral turpitude, a crime requires two essential elements, a culpable state of mind, so we call it a gil guilty uh, mind, and something that is actually bad, reprehensible conduct. So a crime of shoplifting is usually, but not always, is a crime involving moral turpitude because the person intends to steal and this this shows their guilty state of mind and they <clears throat> uh, we call it specific intent to commit a, a bad act that is contrary to the accepted rules of morality morality however some other crimes such as uh, also very common type of crime that we see drunk driving is usually not a crime involving moral turpitude because the statute uh, uh, 
state statute uh, usually uh, prohibits just a specific act. So it does say that it's unlawful to drive while drunk. Pretty much, you know, every statute in every state says that. But it doesn't require that the person commits it with intent to do something unlawful. So we call it a general intent crime. And every time we try to decide whether a specific state or federal crime is deemed to be a crime involving moral turpitude, we need to look at the exact words used in that criminal statute or ordinance sometimes to determine whether it belongs to the category of crimes involving moral turpitude or not. Okay, so thank you for that uh, analysis and detailed example as well, Anna. So generally see the shoplifting and driving while intoxicated DUI, driving under the influence is two very common examples that we see at the firm and I'm guessing in the general population. So Laurie, what are the other categories of crimes or offenses that we often see in our practice? Because I'm getting, guessing that most of the people in today's call whether it's themselves or their relatives or friends or coworkers or their employees would like to understand how it works, what they are, and what are the remedies available. So, Laurie? So, thank you. So, one of the broadest categories, as Anna described, was crime and, crimes involving moral turpitude. So, that's the, the broadest category that we see, and, and m many of the uh, an analyses that we do fall under that category. However, there are several other um, Categories which are, are less common, but they're uh, but they do um, have significant impact on, on uh, someone's immigration. So some of the others that we see um, and that, that that require the same type of analysis, depending on how they're categorized, would be um, that might subject someone to inadmissibility or subject to removal. Um, would be domestic violence or prostitution, controlled substance offenses firearms offenses, and aggravated felonies. Uh, depending on how the crime is categorized and whether it fits into one of those categories uh, or classifications would determine whether or not um, it might be a basis for inadmissibility or would make the individual subject to uh, removal. So it's very important to underscore again that every state or federal statute must be analyzed based on a definition for a particular category to determine immigration con consequences for that individual, if any. Okay, thank you, Laurie. So as you can see, I mean, when we use the word aggravated fel felony, most people jump to the conclusion that, oh, I haven't murdered somebody or I haven't done anything really heinous, heinous and horrible. So clearly I'm not an aggravated felon, but definition of aggravated felony is we will explain has a much different connotation again in immigration law because two or three minor small incidents from separate uh, acts could actually be uh, considered and make a person be considered as an aggravated as an aggravated felony for immigration law purposes so let's go back to the most common offenses that are deemed to be CIMTs and what the typical immigration consequences for anybody who is convicted of a CIMT type of crime Again, CIMT, crime involving moral turpitude, or CMT as some people refer to it as crime, crime involving moral turpitude. So an individual who has a conviction for a CIMT is both subject to inadmissibility and to removal or deportation from the U.S. On the other hand, if the person has committed only one such crime and the maximum punishment available under the law 
does not exceed one year under that particular state statute for that crime, and the actual punishment that the person received is not more than six months, even if that sentence is is like a deferred punishment, then that individual is not subject to being inadmissible from the United States. And then that person enjoys the benefit of what's referred to as the petty offense exception. So God forbid there's been a crime, you really want to try and see if you can fit into the petty offense exception. It's important to understand that a conviction itself is not required for someone to be subject to inadmissibility, as Anna had just explained, because it can be simply based either by committing a CIMT. So a conviction for a CIMT is required for someone to be subject to removal as opposed to inadmissibility, where they don't have to admit you into the United States at the border, for example, or admit you as a permanent resident, but you need a conviction for it to be deported or removed, then the incident leading to the charge occurred within the five-year period before, uh, you know, since that person's admission into the United States. So if you got admitted, became a lawful permanent resident it's in the first five years, if it's within that time period and a maximum of one year or more is possible for that particular offense, now you could be subject to deportation or removal if you're, even if you're not subject to inadmissibility. So this is approximately the type of analysis one would need to make based on history involving a CIMT. So the same offense that can be categorized as belonging to multiple categories of crime, such as a CIMT, a domestic violence, an aggravated felon, felony, etc. So as we've been explaining, it requires a very careful and complex analysis to make sure that the foreign national understands the immigration consequences or how to present it to see if you can fall within the, if you're possible at all, under the petty offense exception. So I'm guessing at this point we've probably lost a lot of the audience, the listening audience, except those who've actually committed a crime or are dealing with that situation for a key employee or a family member. But let's plow on and answer some more very, very important questions that might be relevant. So Anna, what should one expect when they apply for a visa at a U.S. consular post abroad when a person has any type of a criminal record? Sure, um, Sheila. So it's important that somebody who does have a criminal record doesn't travel and plan to apply for a visa without obtaining a professional opinion from a knowledgeable immigration attorney about what uh, consequences that might might have, whether they will be uh, ineligible for the visa, whether they should travel. Because um, if, just to remind our listeners, sometimes you may be inadmissible, but not subject to removal. So you may continue staying in the U.S., but you will not be able to come back if you leave. So all of these are very important considerations, and it's advisable to get a consultation with a knowledgeable uh, immigration attorney, and we do um, this type of consultations regularly. And then, you know, people... Uh, say, well, should I hire an attorney to uh, get uh, an opinion letter so that I can show it to the visa officer? Maybe you should, because even though a consular officer or 
any other immigration officer for that matter uh, would be obligated to consider such an opinion, they oftentimes find it very helpful. And that can facilitate your entry back into the U.S. and that can speed up the issuance of the visa because all the opinion and the argument why you should be eligible for the visa will be right there. Also, it's very important that even if the criminal record was expunged or sealed, you should still disclose it on your form DS-160, which is the visa application form. And then the visa applicant should be prepared to explain the history and uh, the nature of the record and provide a final court disposition. Usually it's clerk-certified final disposition document, which you need to have once the case is done, once the case is completed. And this is the document that should be presented to the consular officer. When the consular officer, and this is something that they do all the time, asks the, the applicant what happened, the uh, correct response would not be to go over the underlying facts of the case because at that point in time, the, those underlying facts have already been decided in a criminal court. But what happened is the, the right answer to that question is what happened in terms of procedure. So were you arrested? When? For, on, based on what um, statute or ordinance? What happened? What is the disposition of the case? And it's not advisable to go over the underlying facts in the initial case, no matter how badly you want to explain your behavior at that point in time. Thank you, Anna. I can understand why this would be very confusing for individuals who don't understand or have not attended this session to want to start volunteering and explaining in majority of cases saying that never happened, I never did it, or there was never an intention. And there's very high chance that inadvertently someone may admit to certain underlying facts in such a situation. So the next question that we want to touch upon is, Lori, if I can jump to you. What are some sure. of the specific situations that we are seeing at the U.S. consulates that, user, that visa applicants should be aware of? Sure. So we talked about um, people who have been charged with driving under the influence, commonly referred to as a DUI. We talked about how that probably may, you know, would not necessarily have um, – you know, consequences regarding whether someone's inadmissible or even subject to removal. However, that really can have, um, you know, some, so there are some consequences that could happen uh, outside of those two areas. Um, and so when, when you're applying for a visa, well, when, if you're uh, either applying for a visa or you're here in the United States, it's not uncommon for uh, individuals who have been arrested for a DUI to have their visas uh, to have their visa revoked, and this happens because when you are arrested, it's reported to a national uh, database, and that information is sent to the consulates. And when the consulates um, learn of this type of information, they uh, typically revoke uh, a person's visa. So that visa um, is essentially your travel document. It doesn't affect your ability to remain in the United States. It won't cause you to be removed. However, if you need to travel and apply for a new visa, 
then uh, you would need to apply for a new visa. And even if you uh, your visa wasn't revoked and you did need to um, apply for a visa for another classification or if your visa had been, um, you know, expired, uh, then then when you do apply for um, a new visa, the implications are if you had uh, a single DUI arrest in the last five years or two in the last 10, the consular officer will refer you to a, a panel physician. And when you're uh, referred to a panel physician, the, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the reason being is that the, the, the determination as to whether or not you have a mental disorder is necessary. And the visa will only be issued if uh, it's determined that you do not have a mental disorder. And if it's determined that you do have a mental disorder, then they also need to make a determination whether or not there is current harmful behavior or past harmful behavior that is likely to recur. A visa will only be refused if um, and when the mental health condition is associated with harmful behavior. So it's very um, you know, important to know that when you have a DUI arrest, mm -hmm. the possibility of your visa being revoked is possible. And then when you do apply for a visa, uh, you'll experience some delay in um, in, in uh, you know obtaining in obtaining your visa because you'll you know like if you have a, a DRI arrest within the last five years or two within the last ten, you'll be subject to a, a panel you know referred to a panel physician. You'll have to go through this evaluation process. So just to and if I may add, thank you, Laurie and. Uh, Anna, before I let you jump in, Anna, so to clarify, when you say okay. automatic visa revocation, revocation. We're talking about prudential visa revocation because that term is used at the consulates all the time, prudential visa. So if somebody says, I don't understand this. My visa is not revoked. It's still valid. It's what Laurie just explained. It's referred to as the prudential visa revocation automatically where the Department of State slash consulate will revoke the visa and the person doesn't even know it. Sometimes they will send an email to the person saying your visa is invalid and you need to come back. But there are times people say that they've never received any notification and had no idea that their visa was automatically revoked or prudentially revoked. Sorry, Anna, jump on right, right along. Oh, thank you, Sheila. I just wanted to add that a referral to a panel physician, as Lori said, usually happens when a person has a history of a DUI arrest and or conviction. But we see referrals to panel physicians with regard to some other criminal records, such as an assault, such as uh, theft, such as um, solicitation. Um, and this is something that doesn't happen very often, but the uh, finding of kind of a mental disorder based on a DUI can also be done based on a different type of record. So. If you travel and apply for the visa based on a different type of record, you're not guaranteed from being referred to, uh, a, uh, not being referred to a panel physician because sometimes that happens as well. Thank you very much, Anna. Laurie, my God, this is such an incredibly interesting, scary, complex topic as we can see. So we'll just answer, and we always try to be within the 30 to 45 minutes, so we're going to try and wrap this up in the next few minutes. Um, 
and I know this does not uh, allow for question and answers from the audience, etc. And maybe at some point we could do that, but in most cases it's so individual and so specific that an answer from one person with a general rule may not be maybe completely opposite answer for a different person because of the state statute. So remember, federal law completely different from state law, and each state has its own definition of crime. So if you have 50 states, you're going to have 50 different state laws, and the, the use of the words can make such a difference for how things work. One of the questions we're often asked is, hey, the consular officer or the USCIS is requesting me to provide my police reports. Should I provide them? And the general information that we provide is police records should not be provided either to the consular officer or to the USCIS because the police report, which is really a probable cause statement, which is based on a police report, cannot be used to prove a conviction. Even though it may sound scary and horrible, the proof of a criminal conviction can only be established through items such as an official record of judgment and conviction, an official record of plea, a verdict slash decision, and sentence and a docket entry from the court records that indicates the existence of the conviction. So sometimes the consulates in the USCIS can look to the documents that make up the record of conviction if the statute of conviction has been found by the court to be divisible. So there's a whole analysis of divisibility of statute and what it means. And in this particular call, we obviously don't want to get into that whole very in-depth analysis of divisibility of state statutes and uh, different interpretations that that can have. So police records are not a part of the record of conviction and hence should not be provided to determine the nature of the conviction. The record of conviction, again, as I said, generally consists of the statutory definition, charging document, written plea agreement, transcript of plea, and any explicit factual finding by the trial judge to which the, de to which the defendant has agreed or assented to. So with that, I'm going to ask, invite Anna to say, hey, I know we often are asked, hey, can you as a law firm help us? What can you do? Can you provide me some kind of a letter if I'm traveling or to show to the consular officer or to the immigration or to, you know, enter the country or in a USCIS interview? So Anna, do you think any kind of letter written by an immigration opinion, an opinion letter or something might help the candidate? As we touched on a little bit um, just a few uh, minutes ago, yes, we think that the letter may help, but we offer a wide variety of services, and in addition to providing a letter that can expedite your admission back into the U.S. or facilitate the visa issuance or uh, help somebody to apply for a green card, we also we can also speak with the person's uh, criminal defense attorney, and we can advise on different um, circumstances from a pretrial diversion agreement and uh, pleading to a lesser offense. Sometimes, what's good for a U.S. citizen to agree to as a defendant in a criminal proceeding is not good for somebody who is not a U.S. citizen. Uh, 
So uh, it sometimes uh, our clients are surprised to learn that you know agreeing to a specific type of conviction and even taking uh, agreeing to jail sentence sometimes would be better than agreeing to two years on probation. Uh, so uh, these are very important uh, moments and in uh, somebody's criminal history. And uh, I think it would be really, really important for somebody to get an opinion, either in writing or verbal, from an immigration attorney. Thank you, Anna. Yeah, I find that all the time where there are many times, I think now more and more people are understand and appreciate the difference between the, uh, a U.S. citizen admitting to something a small crime to get out of jail sentence or prison as opposed to a foreign national doing the exact same offense and admitting to the exact same thing because my, within quotes, my friend did it and nothing happened to my friend. Well, your friend who's a U.S. citizen may have a completely different consequences as Anna just explained, which, is, which used to be more shocking because a lot of criminal lawyers would say, oh, you don't need to talk to anybody else. I'm a criminal law attorney. I'm an expert. I've been doing criminal law for 30 years. Yep, but they may have no understanding of immigration consequences for a foreign national. Excellent point, Anna. So with that, I'm going to ask uh, Laurie. Laurie, what about, would you recommend getting some type of a criminal record sealed or expunged? Because that's a very common question. Again, should I seal it, expunge it? Will that help me avoid checking off yes on one of the forms for immigration? And we know the answer is even if you've expunged or sealed it, you can't say um, uh, no, I don't have a criminal record. You may be able to do that for your job applications under state law, mm -hmm. but not criminal, not under federal immigration forms. So can you explain that briefly? Sure. So, so it's sometimes beneficial for uh, people, you know, like you mentioned, um, they can answer certain questions on employment forms if their records have been expunged or sealed. But you, in the, you know, area of immigration, you know, you're, your your criminal record does not um, go away because your records have either been expunged or sealed, and it's it's also um, very important that if you do seek to have your records expunged or sealed, that you have copies of your final court disposition. These are the documents that the either the um, the government when you're applying for benefits um, in the United States or if you're applying for a visa at the consulate. If you have a criminal record, they're going to want to see what what you were charged with and and what the outcome of that charge was, and they they won't be able to see that unless you present these documents. And we often see um, people who are who are applying for these benefits who who see the benefits um, from, like I mentioned, an employment um, perspective, but they are then do not have the the proper documents needed in order to establish either, you know, what they were convicted of, what category of crime that might fit in, what the outcome was. So it's, it's very important um, that if you do seek to, to have your records expunged or sealed, that you have copies of the, of the final court disposition. And we recommend that you obtain a certified final court disposition and that you keep all copies of your paperwork throughout the process. Exactly, because if you don't, once it's expunged, the, the, that particular court will no longer have that because they completely destroy all those documents. So people think, oh, I can get it from the court. Uh-uh. 
Like Laurie said, you can't get it later from the court, so you absolutely need those documents. Um, now, the final, final question that we want to try to wrap up within that 45-minute window uh, is people think, oh, I've got my permanent resident card. I'm a green card holder, lawful permanent resident, so I'm sure the rules are a little less strict for me. There's different rules. And yes, we talked about admissibility versus removability, and removable being removable is being deported slash removed, even if you're a permanent resident. So people say, well, can it be, and the question is also, will it impact my ability to file and get my U.S. citizenship approved? And so the answer, unfortunately, for a lawful permanent resident slash green card holder is yes. A conviction or an admission to certain crimes would preclude the finding of good moral character. We sometimes refer to it as GMC, good moral character, which is required for citizenship, and the critical time here is not five years from the date of being admitted as a permanent resident, but five years before filing the citizenship papers. So if you got your green card 20 years ago, and some people take forever to decide whether to become a citizen of the United States because it's a very difficult and emotional experience. So if nothing happened for the last 18 years, but something happened two years ago, you're now within that five-year window before filing for citizenship that could actually preclude you uh, from being considered a person of good moral character, which would help you. So notably, for example, if the lawful permanent resident has two or more convictions for driving under the influence during the five-year statutory period that I just referred to, then the person is presumed to have a lack of, a, of good moral character, which will then need to be overcome in order to apply and obtain U.S. citizenship. So a lot of little things, sometimes they say, I didn't pay my tax returns or file it, or I, you know, had this DUI or have certain minor, sometimes it's maybe a very small incident, in their mind, a very small incident, but that could prevent a finding that could result in the person not being considered a person of good moral character, which would then prevent you from getting your citizenship approved. So again, you can see the topic is extremely nuanced and extremely complicated. And I'm so honored and privileged to have both Anna and Lori, who I would consider some of the absolute top in the country to talk about these issues and dealing with them on a routine basis, providing uh, uh, guidance, whether it's in written criminal memo, research memos, or in providing advice or talking to clients. And sometimes we will actually team up, depending on the state um, the person is in, to understand the state criminal statutes. And sometimes we get the criminal lawyer who was previously involved to understand the issues or do our own in-depth analysis because our attorneys are admitted in various states across the United States. So uh, with that, I want to thank each of you for attending our session today talking about the immigration consequences and the impact on a person's, uh, the criminal consequences and the impact on a person's immigration status, and vice versa, the immigration impact of a person's criminal actions. Uh, and on behalf of Anna Stepanova, Laurie Haas, and the entire Multi Law Firm team, thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to continuing to help and guide you, whether you're an individual, a parent, a family member, an employee, or for your, as an employer for your employees. Thank you and have a great afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm.
Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.